Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, I'll talk with author, artist, and knitter Michelle Edwards about her new children's book, Me and the Boss, a story about mending and love. But first, a story about pie and love. Beth Howard made a name for herself worldwide when she published Making Peace, a memoir about how she turned to pie making as she made her way through the grief of losing her husband. She also became Iowa famous when she rented out the American Gothic house in Eldon, where she taught pie lessons and opened up the very popular pitchfork pie stand. In 2015, she set off on a journey around the world to promote world peace. She set herself up with an ambitious schedule, and nothing could be more ambitious than that goal, right? The trip did not go exactly as planned, but the insight and wisdom she gained from the journey has been life-changing. She's written about that journey in World Peace, a pie baker's global quest for peace, love, and understanding. And Beth Howard is back in the studio with me. Welcome back, Beth. (laughs) Thanks for having me back, Charity. Oh, thank you so much for being here. And I remember very clearly back in 2015 when you told me about this journey, I had you on the show to give us a sort of a preview of what you were in intending to do. But take us back in time. What was your vision for this tour around the world? Well, I'd always wanted to go around the world in one go. I've traveled a lot. I've lived overseas. It wasn't that I just hadn't been anywhere, but I wanted to, I don't know, there was some sort of romantic notion of doing it all around at once, you know, circumnavigating. And I and I had inherited my late husband's frequent flyer miles, 420,000 of them. Wow. And you can use them toward a, what's you know, a consecutive ticket. I think it was like 180,000 miles is all, you know, so I could have seven stops. But um, I didn't want to go around the world as a tourist. I wanted to go with a purpose. And I needed a way to like immerse myself in the cultures. And of course, pie, I mean, (laughs) right. Um, And so I and also I had read a children's book a long time ago. It was called How to Make an Apple Pie and See the World. And I thought that was the coolest book title ever. And uh, But as I wrote in my book, I said, I didn't want to just see the world. I wanted to change the world. And I had seen how pie makes people happy, how it helped me heal from my grief. And I just thought that was a really great vehicle for for introdu- getting introductions into people's homes and, you know, meeting people through that, off- having something to offer. And anybody who has read your first book or maybe took a pie class with you or maybe they've listened to interviews on the show. I mean, your experiences through making pie with people, teaching people how to make pie, learning from other people have been really incredibly and and in many ways, I think, to a lot of people, surprisingly powerful. In your first book, you write about handing out pieces of pie on the street in Los Angeles and how that just connected you with people in such an amazing way after the massacre in Newtown, Connecticut. You went and you baked pie and you shared pie and it was such a healing and affirming experience. So in in thinking about taking that global, how did you think that you would be able to do that? (laughs) That's a good question Uh, because I had done it before. 
I had done it in Mexico and Germany because Marcus, my late husband, and I had lived you know, overseas. And so I was always making pie wherever I went. And then uh, I had a friend who lived in South Africa. So I went to visit her. And the first thing I did when I got off the plane was go to the store and buy apples and butter and flour. And uh, I taught two pie classes at a township in South Africa. And these little African kids, you know, they live in homes with no electricity. And yet they show up at this uh, after school center. And there was a kitchen and the, the joy they had in making the pie, the excitement, they were hovering around the oven door and and they were so excited to take their pies home and share them with their families. And, and that experience really just made me think, oh, I want to do that everywhere I go. When you set off on this journey, you were also at a another crossroads in your life. You had moved out of the American Gothic house in Eldon for multiple reasons, one being that living in a tourist attraction is, is not a great way to have privacy. That's um, why the rent was so cheap. Right, exactly. But you had also um, almost become a victim of your own success. There were so many demands on you that you were feeling really burnt out. But there was even more going on in your life. Tell me what you were going through personally as you set off on this journey. After I moved out of the American Gothic house, I was feeling like I had just thrown away my whole identity, my livelihood. Like you had built this whole persona and then... Well, I. this is going to sound so weird to say this, but I didn't like being famous. <laughs> I didn't like the attention. I was just... I was really tired. I felt like people wanted pie all the time. I don't know. I was just like, no, this is a meta pie is a metaphor. You know, I never meant to be like having a pie business. It was just a way to commute uh, to create community. So this, you know, people asking for pie all the time was really hard. Um, yeah, no, I moved out, and then I thought, okay, well, you know, when I moved in to the American Gothic House in 2010, it was a fluke, and I was actually on my way to LA to move back to Los Angeles. And so four years after moving into the American Gothic house, I finally went back to Los Angeles. Like I said, it was my four-year detour. Mm -hmm. And when I went back to LA, which is where my parents were living, I wanted to be close to them. And I also had lived in LA for over a decade. So, you know, lots of my friends there. And I went back there and it just didn't feel like home anymore. And I always sort of joke, but it's sort of true that I said, Iowa ruined me. You know, I grew up in Iowa. I couldn't wait to leave. I graduated early from high school so I could get out and see the world. And then, you know, I ended up coming back 30 years after leaving. And then, and then, I don't know, I just didn't want to be in a big city anymore, I guess. I just, Iowa is a very gentle, peaceful place to live. It's good for the soul. Uh, but I didn't want to be in Iowa either. So anyway, that was I had those those frequent fire miles were expiring and that's when I decided to go around <laughs> so the world. But there I, was there was the pressure on you to to do this, to have this big adventure. If it was going to ever happen, this was the moment where it was going to happen. But you also write about um not your anxiety about the journey, but you were just feeling a lot of anxiety generally. You were worried about your parents who were aging and your dad was going to have to have a, 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 um, something removed from his skin. Melanoma. Melanoma. Okay. So there was this fear of cancer. And, and you had just lost one of your dogs. And this fear of loss, I mean, you had gone through so much on your journey to through grief and 
learning to live with grief and recovering from the grief of of losing Marcus. But I get the sense as you were setting out on this journey that that loss made you so afraid of losing so much more. Marcus died when he was traveling. He was only 43, and it was so sudden and unexpected. So that kind of shock, I guess, you know, trauma, if you will, uh, yeah, that changes you. And I'm, I mean, I, to this day, I'm still paranoid. <laughs> like I, every time yeah. I leave the house, I'm like, I want to make sure my affairs are in order, even if I'm just going to the grocery store. <laughs> it's crazy. But uh, yeah, no, there's definitely a, you know, there's a clock ticking on all of us. We don't know how much time we have. So I don't take that for granted. But uh, yeah, just sometimes I feel like there's only so much heartache you can take also. Like I didn't, I couldn't bear the idea of losing another loved one, human or animal. Yeah. So yeah, that was that would made it hard because like, what if something happened while I was away on the halfway around the world? What would I do? What if it happened? Something happened to them or to me? And what if I got sick? Um, you know, what if I didn't have enough money? What if I felt really lonely and homesick? And you know, I mean. I've traveled a lot. I've lived away from home. I'm independent. What, what, what's where did that fear come from? But it was there. Yeah, and you were doing this at a different point in your life. You had traveled for many, many years, but here you were, 52 years old, heading off on a really intense and grueling around the world journey. Did you think about that too? <laughs> no. I somebody said about me once that I have this way of creating complexity in my life. And I was like, oh, yeah, I think that's kind of true. Who was putting pressure on me to go around the world? Nobody you. but myself, right. right? I could have divided up those miles and and done other trips separately. But uh, And also, I didn't have to make pie. I could have just traveled and visited friends wherever I went. I, there are a lot of things I could have done differently to take the pressure off myself and to make it easier. You know, I lugged some heavy luggage, my rolling pin alone, like who travels with a rolling pin? So yeah, it was it was just physically exhausting. And, you know, I blog uh, my, you know, my blog, the world needs more pie. And I thought, oh, I'll just be writing the whole time I'm traveling. And I didn't even have time to write. I was too busy figuring out where I was going and who I was staying with and how I was going to get what I needed for the pie classes and what I was going to you know, try to learn when I was there and then always having to think ahead to the next place. And I, you know, I did take on a lot by myself. Yeah. Well, and, and there was this extra pressure because your first memoir really grew organically out of your life experiences. Did you feel pressure like, I, I have to write another memoir, I have to have another story that's worth telling in this way? No, I didn't look at it that way. It mm. was more about the goal. I just had wanted to go around the world and I wanted to make pie. <laughs> uh, so that was that was it. I you know, I figured maybe a memoir would come out of this. And you know, it's been 7 years since I took the trip. Yeah. And so the memoir didn't just happen overnight and the trip didn't go exactly as I planned either. It wasn't this great like, oh, look, I changed the world. Everything's so wonderful. Look at all this world peace everywhere that I made pie. <laughs> it was not like that at all. So yeah, it took me quite a while to process everything that happened, probably because I was so tired. I had taken so much in. Yeah. 
yeah, it's just a lot to sort of unpack. Well, and we're going to have to take a short break, but we'll be back to this conversation in a moment. And we will just skim the surface of all that you went through on that trip. And really, uh, I think what makes this such a beautiful read is how you were transformed by this experience. So we will talk a great deal more about that in just a moment. All right, Beth? I am talking with Beth Howard. She is the author of World Peace, a pie baker's global quest for peace, love, and understanding. Back in 2015, she set off on a journey around the world to make pie, teach people how to make pie, learn about local pies, and promote world peace. We'll find out all about it in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. With me today, Beth Howard. She is the author of World Peace. That's P-I-E-C-E, World Peace, as in a piece of pie, a pie baker's global quest for peace, love, and understanding. And she'll be at the Burlington Public Library, 10 a.m. on Saturday morning, and then at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City, Sunday at 2 p.m. And there will be a pie demo at Prairie Lights Bookstore, so you can uh, demystify pie crust for yourself. Trust me, Beth taught me how to make pie crust and I was a changed person. So today we're talking about the around the world journey that inspired this memoir, which took place in 2015. And uh, Beth, as I was saying before the break, I mean, you set yourself up for an incredibly ambitious world tour, 10 days in different countries. You started out in New Zealand. You went to Australia, Thailand, India, Lebanon, Greece, Switzerland, Germany, and then you came home. And that first stop in New Zealand, one of the things that I love so much about all of your work, but about this book in particular, is that you are so very honest. I can I can imagine that there was maybe a temptation to gloss things up and make and put a pretty bow on things. But that first stop in New Zealand was a tough one. Tell me about it. Oh, where do I start? Everybody loves New Zealand, except for me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's because I went there during the rainy season, you know, and that mm-hmm. wasn't a choice I had because, you know, when you're going around the world, you don't get to pick the seasons. You know, you're going one direction and you only have so much time. So, uh, so yeah, no, I stayed with somebody who, uh, was going to be setting up a bunch of pie events for me and, and nothing was planned when I got there. And like I said, the weather was bad, so it was, it was cold all the time yeah. and it just made me feel lonely. Just that first stop was like, oh, what am I doing? But also at that point didn't know how to pace myself because 
I thought I needed to just jump right in and change the world. And yeah. <laughs> and I just was ready to get going. I didn't know how to also uh, pace my spending. I didn't know, you know, how much money I could, how would I be able to afford, you know, going all the way around the world if I blew all my money at the first stop. So I don't know, I was just really nervous. And, uh, and my host was really lovely. But, you know, we had never met before. And she offered to host me for 10 days, which was so generous. And she is... But that's in- a lot of time. Well, people were telling both of us separately, like, what? <laughs> you don't even know each other. And I'm like, no, but she already feels familiar. She feels like a friend to me. We talked on the phone and, you know, she's knits prayer shawls and, you know, just she's a really generous soul. So, you know, two people coming together to do good for the world. Why not? And, you know, and and she really is lovely. But um, but I pushed her too hard. You're talking about my trip being ambitious, mm-hmm. you know, it's definitely too ambitious. And I did push her too hard to try to pack in too many things. I went, we went to a, a, an apple orchard. It was like a seven hour drive or something crazy. And uh, down in Hawke's Bay, and it was really beautiful where they grow Granny Smith apples and um, taught a pie class to 20 people at a, uh, at a high school there. And yeah, just packed it in. <laughs> right. Although, I mean, there were some lovely moments, but you must have been filled with doubt after that that first 10 days. The reason I was filled with doubt is because we didn't leave on good terms. But she told me at the very end, and she had, you know, we should have communicated throughout. And I don't know how I missed this because I'm quite good at reading people. Mm-hmm. But she said that I, she did tell me that I pushed her too hard. And she was really upset about that. And I there was nothing I could do about it at that point except apologize and then just haven't had any contact ever since, which breaks my heart. So, yeah. 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 So you go from there to Australia where you have a friend and and things things pick up a a little bit. Things go a little bit better. But it was sunnier there. Right. Right. (laughs) You're also I, I, I felt like you were finding it hard to realize that vision of connecting with with people through Pi, of finding ways to connect with people who would not be part of your social sphere and, you know, uh, really make that leap. The things that made that trip to South Africa so special. It was hard for you to recapture that feeling, wasn't it? Well, to feel like I was really in a different culture other than my own, yes. In New Zealand and Australia are both very you know, Anglo, European, so, you know, sorry, mm-hmm. white people mostly, except, you know, I mean, obviously Maori and Aboriginals, and uh, but I didn't get closer to those other more ethnic, um, you know, people of origin, they call them, you know, so I would have liked to have been a little more immersed with like sort of the historical part, if, if that makes any sense. But then it's like, well, what does that even mean? You know, we're all... We're all human on this planet. Our cultures are constantly shifting and merging and melding. And so what does that even mean to like pick one ethnic group or one culture or or one skin color? It just, you know, it's all good. It's all good. One of the things that that I love about this book and and you know there were highlights in every country. There were lowlights in every country. There were some really tough experiences that you had and and a lot of moments of doubt and and definitely some moments where I think you questioned the whole concept of of what you were undertaking. Um but 
these coincidences or these connections that you kept finding everywhere you went, someone had a connection to someone else that you knew, whether that was someone in Iowa or someone in Germany or this web of people that was connected all around the globe was so beautiful and surprising. Were you surprised by that? Oh, that was the most surprising thing for sure. I I was in a bar in Beirut, Lebanon, making small talk with a guy next to me. It was a, somebody's birthday party that my host had taken me to. And he was talking about being from Switzerland. I said, oh, I'm going to be stopping there and, you know, two stops from now. And so he asked me where I was going in Switzerland. And I told him Bern. And then, oh, I know someone in Bern. You know, like, what? You know, so the next thing I know, I'm like shrieking. I know what? I can't believe you know her. You know, <laughs> and then it happened again in Greece. It, it just... It just kept happening. I don't know. There's uh, I keep quoting this article by David Spiegelhalter. He's a British statistician, and he says there's no such thing as a coincidence. If you are the kind of person who talks to strangers, then you'll always find somebody you know, somebody you connect with. So I think that's a really good lesson. I think it's a really good takeaway from this book also is to remind people that you're never alone out there. And Just talk to people. Be open. Don't be afraid of each other. The more you talk to others, the more you find out what you have in common and maybe people. It's incredible. Well, what I took away from your experiences in different places was it felt like the bigger the idea, the grander the gesture, really the less connection you were able to make. But in these small moments, these one-on-one moments or moments even with, with family that's where the real connection was. And yes, Pi made it possible. And why do you think that is? You've spent many years thinking about this, but why do you think that making Pi with someone deepens a moment in such a powerful way, deeper than than you could get just by gathering for drinks or a meal? Because you're working with your hands and creating something together. And it's something that can be shared with others. So it's not just you. It's you and this other person working together. And then it's the exponential part of that by sharing what you made that makes other people happy too. So it's just, it's got a ripple effect. It really does. I I don't know, like my friend who knits the prayer shawls, like, you know, you could wrap yourself up in it, but it, it doesn't go beyond you. But the pie, you know, you slice it up into what, eight pieces and... That's eight people that you've reached. Right. So. And and often it's a skill that you then have and can share with others. Well, the idea is to teach people how to make their own pie and and then they can do the same thing and then it becomes exponential. I'm talking with Beth Howard. Her latest book is World Peace, A Pie Baker's Global Quest for Peace, Love and Understanding. The hardest moment in the book for for me to read about, and and I'm guessing for you to experience, um, was when you were in Lebanon. And um, the host that you were staying with had done a great deal of outreach work in a refugee camp that was full of, of refugees who had fled Syria's civil war. And you took pies to the camp to share with people and found that I guess in some ways it was almost like bringing a bucket of water to a house fire. You know, uh, it was a moment where you weren't able to make that 
connection. Tell me what you took away from from that experience. <laughs> I, I, that one, I don't. I think that's the thing that kept me from writing the book for really? so long. Yeah, that chapter specifically, that experience specifically. So we went. Um, I was with Barbara Massad. She is the author of Soup for Syria, a cookbook. Uh, she's a photographer and uh, and cookbook author. She had spent time at the Syrian refugee camp making soup with the people. And then she gained their trust and then she was taking portraits of them. And then she assembled this amazing cookbook that all the proceeds would go to help the refugees. She's the one that suggested that I take pies to the camp. Yeah. So I thought, okay, well, that's going to be great. <laughs> and then we got there. And first of all, I just remember like my stomach seizing up when I saw the sign Syrian border. <laughs> like I've never been that close to a war zone, mm. number one. And uh, and number two, in the camp, like we were delivering pies. Uh, we were on our way to deliver pies to a family she knew. And there was a fight that broke out. And the next thing you know, we're surrounded by these this group of angry men running with sticks and clubs and machetes. And they were on their way to join in in a fight. And I was like, what is, what is that? You know, like, this place isn't safe. But it turns out that was actually a family feud that had they had brought that from Syria with them mm -hmm. to the camp. It wasn't because of the circumstances in the camp. So that was number one. So we had to do a U-turn and leave. And then we delivered a few other pies to some other families we found. And then and we found these two young boys who uh, we stopped and talked to them. They were carrying toy guns. And they were probably maybe 10 years old. And uh, we gave them each a pie because they were going in two different directions. And uh, and later, when we had circled back through the camp, uh, we saw one of my pies being thrown into a ditch. It was something I'd never experienced before, seeing one of my pies actually literally airborne, yeah. flying toward a ditch. And uh, And Barbara stopped and chewed out this poor little kid yelling at him in Arabic, what are you, why are you doing that? She was trying to do something nice for you. And he said his mom made him get rid of it. And so she wanted to go talk to his mom. And I just said, no, that's, that's enough. But you know, that's the kind of thing you go, what, what impact does, will that have on his life? And how I am, <laughs> apparently I'm not making the world a better place. So yeah. You mentioned that it took a long time to craft this into this memoir. Again, the trip was in 2015. It's now 2022. You did an amazing job telling this story. And you were, in all of your writing, you have always been so honest and open and vulnerable. And that's, of course, why people connect with you so powerfully. But did it take you a long time to understand what you had gained from this journey? Definitely. I was still lost when I came home. I'm like, I didn't have my pie stand anymore. I didn't have a community. I lived in a new place. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm back in Iowa. If you follow me on Facebook, you know exactly what I'm, what and who I'm talking about. Also read the book. That's the happy right, ending. Right. right? Uh, so yeah, it just, it just took me a long time to sort of put my life back together and figure out what I wanted to do next. I I did a lot of other things in the meantime. I published my Housefrau Honeymoon book. I uh, took TV writing and film writing classes and wrote some scripts, which has been really fun, unexpectedly fun. Uh, my American Gothic House story, by the way, is now in a screenplay form. So that's oh, that's wow. been, yeah, it's actually better that way, <laughs> as it turns out. 
Um, yeah, it just took me a while. And I will say that writing the book and taking my time to write it, I really had to dig deep to find the good parts of the story because I was really focused on the discouraging points of the story. Yeah. Like I was, I came back tired and discouraged about humanity. I was like, this trip was supposed to restore my faith in humanity, not rip it apart. Uh, and then, of course, we came into the, you know, the, all the divided politics, those years of, I will not mention. And uh, yeah, so I was feeling a little bit hopeless in a way. But writing the story was so helpful because I could really think about all the good things that happened. I didn't want it to be a negative book. No mm-hmm. one would read it if it was just all complaining about the world. It was like, no, what are, what's the good stuff? And there was so much good stuff, you know? And a lot of it was just kindness, you know? Sm- like you were saying earlier, the small, the small acts are more impactful than the big ones. And it was the little things, like this woman in Greece who helped me with my luggage get down to the, get on the right train in the metro. And I had been so sick. I was so weak. I could barely lift my suitcase. And she helped me without asking, didn't speak any English. And it was just like, to me, that's everything right there. That sums it up. It's like, somebody helped me with my suitcase in Athens, Greece, a place that was supposedly too dangerous to travel to at the time because of, of a financial crisis. And, and I just, I always remember that, like, when the world gets so frustrating and scary, it's like, no, 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 there are good people out there. And they're doing nice things. And just the small things matter so, so, so much. I've read all your books, Beth. And, and I feel like this is your best book. And you told me before we started this conversation that you feel the same way. If it's okay to say that, yes. Yeah. I definitely think this <laughs> think, is my best book by far. I think <laughs> Sorry. Get, I think you get Not to say to, that. Not to, you know, just uh, dis- diminish my other books and all the work I put into them. But this one I worked especially hard on. And I also feel like it's so timely and the message is more universal in a way. It's just the whole, we need to come together. We need to build bridges. We need to remember that we're all one human species. We have a shared humanity. We share this planet. We need to come together and be kinder to one another, be more open to each other, try to understand each other instead of being scared. Yeah, there's a lot in there. Yeah. Well, and and again, it's your honesty and your vulnerability that that really, I, I feel like as a reader, helped me connect with you. Plus, there's a lot of pie. There's a lot of education. You did a great deal of research about pie all over the world. And then there's a love story, too. So, <laughs> Beth, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your stories with us. Thanks for having me. Beth Howard, her latest work is World Peace, a pie baker's global quest for peace, love, and understanding. She will be at the Burlington Library, 10 o'clock Saturday morning, and then she'll be at Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m., and she'll be doing a pie demonstration at Prairie Lights. Coming up in just a moment, I'll talk with children's author Michelle Edwards. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Michelle Edwards is an award-winning author and illustrator of many children's books. Her latest children's book, also incorporates her passion for crafting. She is well known for her knitting skills, which she shares through her website, Modern Daily Knitting. The book is Me and the Boss, a story about mending and love, and it features the illustrations of April Harrison. It tells the story of Lee and his big sister Zora as they head to the local library for a sewing workshop. Speaking of sewing workshops, Michelle Edwards will be at Home Ec Workshop in Iowa City on Saturday, November 19th for re- Readings and an opportunity to work on a sewing project. The event is from 1 to 3 p.m. It is free and open to the public. And Michelle is with me now. Hello, Michelle. Hello, Charity, and thank you for having me here today. Absolutely. It's wonderful to see you. And let's introduce people to the book a little bit. I said that that it's the story of Lee and his big sister, Zora, but maybe the best way to introduce us would be to just read the, the first few pages and give us a taste. Sure. I'd love to do that. I know big sisters. Zora, the boss, she's mine. I go where she goes, and we are always home before dark. Those are the rules. Hurry up, orders the boss, and we race all the way to the library. Inside the heavy wooden doors, I follow Zora past the computers and the shelves of books, and into a room of big kids. The teacher tells us to call her Mrs. C. She gives everyone but me threads, also a needle with a big eye and a sharp point, like a tiger's tooth. She thinks I'm a baby not old enough for a sharp tiger's tooth. Lee needs one, says Zora. Everyone listens to the boss. He looks small, but he's really eight. Am not, not even seven yet. I sit tall. Mrs. C gives me my own stuff. Thank you, I say, before the boss tells me to because I am polite on my own. (laughs) That is just a little taste of Me and the Boss, a story about mending and love. And people probably will not be surprised to learn that Lee is actually up to this task. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I am curious about the inspiration for this book. Where did the idea come from? I'm really glad you asked that question, because the inspiration comes right from a store here in Iowa City called Home Ec Workshop, which has become kind of not only a place where I get my knitting supplies and have learned to sew, but also a place where I've found community. And one day I was there, and I was talking with the owner, Cody Josephson, and she started to tell me a story about when she taught a class about of embroidery to kids experiencing homelessness. She said that one boy stood up and he said to her, 
I can fix my pants. She saw the wheels turning in his head and making the connection between this thing with a needle and thread and his own life. And that I knew at that moment I wanted to tell that story because I think that making things empowers us. And I think it's really important for kids to learn to know to, to know how to do things for themselves, to sew, to cook. Um, and so it took me a really long time to figure out how to frame this story and what part of the story I had a right to tell. And, um, and when it finally came together, it was a wonderful moment for me too. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your experience with knitting and sewing. When did you start? I started um, knitting really young, and I was always making things. And I was kind of a messy um, kind of kid who was always talking and, and, and trying to do things. And I think that maybe I was taught knitting to slow down. And um, I think that that's one of the things making does for us is it, it gives us this thing that's ours and and we focus on it and and that slows us down and gives us this just sense of who we are. And you talk about the empowerment of being able to to do some of these practical things, but the, the empowerment of being able to make something with just your own hands. Do you remember that feeling when you were a child? I absolutely do. And, you know, I, um, I have a running list of things that I knew how to make, but everyone else I knew how to make when we were kids. For instance, um, we had to cover all our school books with a book, you know, to make a book cover for it. And yep. we did that with a paper, brown paper bag. And we had this way of folding it. And I just remember it, it made that book sort of mine. You know, I had to cover that book. And that was a great feeling. Yeah, I remember doing that too. And I'm being disappointed actually that my kids, they don't even have books for school anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've told them about, no, you, there was a specific way that you made the book cover and then you <laughs> decorate it as well. But that, that, I mean, that's one of the things that I love about this book is because we do see Lee taking on this skill, which is really hard for a six-year-old boy, right. even to make stitches in a piece of fabric. But then when he catches on, he has that moment of empowerment where he not only can do something valuable and make something beautiful, right. but he can also help his sister, right. who is obviously somebody that he looks up to. Um, and, and you talked about having a hard time figuring out how to tell the story that that you heard about. And obviously, this is not exactly the same story. But that moment of being able to help another right. person, that's such a powerful moment. Is it Was that your aha moment of thinking, oh, this is how I can do it? It was one of them. Actually, um, I was um, I went in 2019 to Latvia for a mitten workshop. That's another story. But the per my traveling <laughs> I think you need to write a whole book about that one. <laughs> my traveling companion um, was a knitting colleague, and so we had a lot of time to talk. You know, we obviously weren't watching or listening to Latvian radio uh, or TV. So she told me how she was involved in a mending project. 
that went to shelters and helped people mend things. And she sewed the ear back on a stuffed animal for a child. And I thought, bingo, I need that piece. (laughs) Thank you. That is lovely. Now, you are also an artist and an illustrator, um, mm-hmm. and you share many of your your most recent illustrations through Instagram as well. But yeah. you did not illustrate this book. Why did you decide that you would not be the illustrator of this book? You know, um, I did when I first started out, I thought I'd only want to write and illustrate my own books. But um, and that was more when I was um feeling most comfortable on the art side. And over time, I became more involved in the writing part. I I was less wobbly. I felt like there were stories that I wanted to write, but that didn't actually fit the kind of things that I like to illustrate. And so I began to separate those things out. And this story is one of those. It, it just wasn't something that was going to be a book for me to illustrate. And I was kind of, I was thrilled that April did it because she took it, she took the illustrations to a completely different place than I ever would have. And she taught me a lot by doing that. Interesting. Tell me more about that. What what do you feel she was able to do that you couldn't have done? Well, she certainly understands children and the relationships. And I can't show you the cover th- on radio, but I can tell you um, that picture is worth a thousand words. The expressions that she caught and the diversity that she gave to the book and her understanding of what that means to be represented. And that's something that's really important to me. And I think that April was the right person to do that. In some of your past books, you have um, represented your Jewish identity Mm -hmm. in, in your books, which I'm sure has been very meaningful to many people. The children in this book are black children, and April Harrison is also a black American. So was that your hope we we know that representation is so important we know that there are not enough black characters in right. children's literature was that part of your plan or was that something that april brought into the project well i think that was i mean i i think it was on the horizon to do that kind of thing and in the in the original parts of the story which it, it changed a lot while i was um Uh, in the editorial process. It was much more of an urban kind of book. And um, I have my middle child is a librarian at the Enoch Pratt Library in Baltimore, the central library. And um, they are um, working in the maker's lab. So that influenced me too. And yeah, I think that it was a decision that this is a book that April could bring to a wider community. And I really, I, it, it, it's the last few years have been eye-opening for me. And as much as I thought I knew and as open-minded as I thought I was, I just wasn't there. And so it thrilled me that this book would be illustrated by a BIPOC illustrator and that she would open those doors to other kids seeing themselves in this book. We talked about your connection to crafting, to knitting, to sewing, and and how that is an important element of this. It's also clearly a love story to libraries. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me why that's so important to you. I, I almost... 
I mean, well, I did. I started to cry when I got back, you know, when the when the Iowa City Public Library opened up again and I actually walked in. It just I I just it just came back to me how important this was to me, you know, and um with my um with Flory being at the library and seeing what they do for their community, the kinds of things that um, kids are able to get from from a library in a city that's tough and poor, it's just amazing me. It's just such an important institution. It wasn't like that when I was growing up in Troy, New York, where we had, uh, you know, a big marble library in downtown Troy, and it wasn't really where you went. And so discovering libraries is just an adult delight. The... um this feels like a, a wonderful moment to publish a love story <laughs> or a love letter <laughs> to libraries as well. Obviously, through the pandemic, so many of our public libraries were so incredibly challenged because they are gathering spaces and gathering was dangerous. Um, but it also is a moment where a lot of libraries are under attack. Mm-hmm. And there are also people who question, like, well, with everything in the world online, what do we need libraries for anyway? way and <laughs> which I think is a kind of a ridiculous question but I I've definitely heard it so um coming out of the pandemic and having that experience in Iowa City had you already started working on this project or well I had I had and you know I had been using the library like um uh, you know, ordering hold books and and getting them and curbside going, pickup, yep. go, curbside pick, and, and I always, by the way, stopped and picked up a paper bag with a making project, which was usually for children, and usually I gave it away, but I wanted to see it, and and that was also a, um, a touchstone. It was a touchstone for me. It really was. You are uh, you, you're doing, of course, a lot of book appearances. But this one at Home Ec Workshop, I mean, that brings you full circle. That brings you back to where this story began for you. And you're also going to have people actually working on a project. What's the project that the kids get to do when they come in? (laughs) Well, I'm glad you asked that. There is a project at the back of the book, which is like Lee's project that he works on with a needle and thread and whatever. Um, the project we'll be doing at Home Ec will be with um, like burlap and yarn. And um, I I developed this project um, also for bookstores and libraries who might want to do that because it's a little bit more accessible. And um, I did it at Sidekick and it was a it was kind of also just a really emotional moment. I could see the kids calming down and um you know one per, one kid who was kind of tough came up to me after and she said, "Hey, so like I'm going to take this home. How do I do this part?" And then it just thrilled me that that they that they got that that I I was able to do that for them. You know, there aren't a lot of things we can do in this life that impact people. So we do what we can. The uh, the project in the back, you know, it gives you an idea of how to make it. But I can imagine that actually being with a group of kids and and giving them the opportunity to create this project, I can imagine that the results were as diverse <laughs> as they were. <laughs> 
us as a group of children can make it. I mean, what that must have been kind of a magical moment to see this thing that you made transformed in so many different ways. It was. And, you know, I think it's really, um, you know, I said to the kids, hey, you know what? This is not a contest. There are no A pluses. And this is about learning and and slowing down. And, you know, I think like in the book, um, Lee tells his hands to slow down. And I will tell you, I tell my hands often to slow down. So I think that that's what we do when we make. And and a wonderful, wonderful thing for children to hear and learn. But that's wonderful for all of us. We all need that reminder, Michelle. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle Edwards, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you very much, Charity. And uh, everyone be well. And read and go to your library <laughs> and mend your clothes. Right? <laughs> Michelle Edwards, her latest children's book is Me and the Boss, a story about mending and love. It is illustrated by April Harrison, and she will be at Home Ec Workshop in Iowa City on Saturday, November 19th, for readings and an opportunity to work on a sewing project. The event is from 1 to 3 p.m. It is free and open to the public. On December 11th. All right. She'll also be at Prairie Lights on (laughs) December 11th as well. Talk of Iowa is a production of Iowa Public Radio News. Our producers are Danny Gear, Caitlin Troutman, and Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. Our intern is Natalie Dunlap. You can get in touch with us anytime. Talk of Iowa at iowapublicradio.org. And please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Search for Talk of Iowa wherever you get your podcasts. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe.